0: In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Throughout this past month of October, our New Testament readings in the lectionary have been going through the New Testament book of Hebrews. And this book of Hebrews is timely for us for many reasons. The first one is that it's a letter written to a group of Christians who were from a Jewish lineage, hence the title to the Hebrews. And it was these Jewish Christians who were tempted to no longer remain in the Christian community. I think temptation to forsake the gathering of the church today is quite relevant. But Hebrews is also timely because this group of Christians had experienced some level of persecution for their faith. And they had begun to wonder, is it really worth it to keep following Christ. Many of us in the West are beginning to experience, perhaps to a deeper degree, the cost of being a Christian. And in such times, it's only natural for us to ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep going when the cost of following Christ will cost me dearly? Well, the writer to the Hebrews answers this question with a resounding Yes, it is worth it. And this letter of the Hebrews is actually one long sermon that was meant to encourage and to exhort these Jewish Christians to hold fast in light of who Jesus is and and what he's done. So my friends, this morning we run a great risk, actually. We run the risk of something that I would bet all of us here have done at some point or another, including myself, and that is to show up in the middle of a sermon, so, don't be discouraged if as you, read, as you heard read Hebrews 7 and felt perhaps perplexed or detached. Uh, we're in a sense air dropping in to a sermon, right in the very middle of a sermon, where the writer to the Hebrews is making a very specific argument. To encourage his audience, the writer has been arguing that Jesus is superior to all that the Old Testament had to offer. He's better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the angels who revealed the Old Covenant. And now in particular, he's showing that Jesus is better than the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, specifically the priests. So without us getting lost in the weeds this morning, I want us to see the relevance and the good news that this passage has for us today. And that good news is this. Because Jesus is a permanent and perfect priest, we can possess the object of our heart's desire with absolute and unshakable assurance. So to that end, I want us to see three things this morning. First, that you need a priest. Second, that Jesus is a perfect and permanent priest. And finally, how Jesus as your perfect, permanent priest can change your life. So first, you need a priest the book of Hebrews assumes that you need a priest, and yet I recognize just how utterly offensive that sounds in our day and age. For one, the spirit of our age is such that no one is going to tell me what to do, right? And I'm telling you this morning actually that this claim is doubly offensive because I'm not just telling you that you need something, but I'm telling you that you need a priest. And well, why is that doubly offensive? Well. A priest is someone who mediates the relationship between the people and God. A priest represents the people before God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 gives a pretty good definition of what a priest is. It says, a priest is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see, a priest doesn't just mediate. He enables others to have access to a deity by means of offering sacrifices in order to appease that deity's wrath. And for many today, that sounds so primitive, so unenlightened. We balk at the idea of a, a God who judges, and we cower at the notion of a God requiring sacrifices for sins. For those who perhaps still entertain the existence of God today, most think that such a God certainly wouldn't bar me from His presence. Why in the world would a loving God do such a thing? The idea that we need a priest is offensive to the modern ear because we have a radically new and false understanding both of ourselves and of God. Carl Truman, in his uh, recent book, The Rise and Triumph, of the modern self, details how dramatically our understanding of ourselves has changed just in the last 100 years or so. He gives an example of this by looking at how people have thought about job satisfaction. He says, My grandfather left school at age 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, the industrial heartland of England. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction in his work, there is the distinct possibility he would not have understood the question. But if he did understand, he probably would have understood the terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on the table and shoes on his children's feet. And if it did so, then yes, he would affirm that his job gave him satisfaction. His needs were those of his family, and in enabling him to meet them, his work then gave him satisfaction. However, if I'm asked, if I find satisfaction in my work, he says, my instinct is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives me, about the sense of personal fulfillment that I feel when a student learns a new idea or becomes excited about some concept in my class. And the difference is stark. For my grandfather, job satisfaction was empirical, it was outwardly directed, and it was unrelated to his psychological state. For those in the baby boomer and subsequent generations, however, the issue of feeling and psychological happiness is what is central. What he's saying is we understand ourselves today almost exclusively by our inner feelings, whereas up until very recently, identity was something that was constructed by conforming oneself and one's feelings to the external realities around them, like the family or the community. And it's no wonder that today the priest of the modern age is now the therapist. The modern therapist has assumed the role of the priest, ushering the patient into the presence of God, which in the modern age is now man's psychological and therapeutic self. And so the concept that you need something outside of yourself is almost completely untenable to the average person on the street today. Unless, of course, that person or thing is going to assist you in expressing your inner and authentic self. But the second reason that such a claim is offensive is because we have a wrong view, as I said, of God. Today, most people construct God in their own image. They fashion him out to be as they want him to be. Not as as He's revealed Himself to be. And in doing so, they ignore the clear revelation that God has given of Himself. And I'm not just talking about within the Bible and the pages of Scripture. I I mean the evidence all around us in the world that points to who God is. We all in our heart suppress this truth to suit our own fancies. What I have seen uh, is when people suppress what they know about God in their hearts, they, they actually become like children who are swimming in a pool trying to hold a beach ball underneath the water. Eventually, that beach ball is going to surface to the top. Let me tell you what I mean. I, I've worked with young people for almost a decade now, and one of the things that I've noticed is that there are very few topics of conversation that are taboo for college students. You can walk into the middle of a conversation so graphic that it would have made people just 25 years ago blush. Yet they can talk about it with the sort of uh, bluntness, maybe, that we might talk about the weather. But you know one of the, the two things that I've found that will stop a college student dead in their tracks. It's the top, one's the topic of death, and another is the topic of, of guilt. Both of these have to do with this inexplicable sense of wrongness. Over and over again, I've, I've heard from young people who report a sudden, overwhelming, and powerful sense of wrongness. They know something isn't right. They say, I'm not right. My, uh, the world is not right. My family is not right. This dating relationship I'm in, it's not right. They have been taught from day one, or, or rather more accurately, they've caught the idea from day one, That this world is all that there is. That there isn't a God, and everything is really just an accident. And the idea of right and wrong is, is just purely relative. It's a social construct. And yet, they can't help but feel these echoes of God's truth in their hearts. They feel the wrongness in the world and in themselves, and it terrifies them. I wonder if you're in that same boat today. But what they do, only for a moment, because uh, they they end up actually just self-medicating and and silencing these feelings as quickly as they can. And if I could sum up ministry to young people in a nutshell, it's basically being there when the self-medication begins to fail. And then gently yet firmly leaning into that sense of wrongness that they can't seem to shake. Because it's in those moments that you begin to realize that you need a priest. You can't represent yourself. And it's also when the Bible has some incredibly good news to offer. Because Jesus is a great priest. And that leads me to the second point. Jesus is a permanent and perfect priest. A priest, as I said, represents the people before the judgment seat of God. And verse 25 in our Hebrews passage this morning says that Jesus intercedes on behalf of his people. He pleads their case. In a sense, a priest is a bit like a lawyer. In a court of law, you don't really stand on your own merits, you stand vicariously through the merits of your lawyer. On the one hand, if your lawyer is very gifted and skillful in knowing the law and is articulate and winsome, then you appear good before the judge. On the other hand, if you have somebody who is incompetent, then you look as they do. Your life in a courtroom is bound up with that of your lawyer. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying that this is all very similar to what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Our passage gives us two reasons why Jesus is an excellent lawyer. The first is that he's a permanent one. He's always on retainer. He's always available. He's always advocating. He's always pleading your case. This is what makes him so much better than those old priests that came before. Verse 23 says that all those Old Testament priests were many in number because they died. But Jesus is a perfect and permanent priest because he lives forever By virtue of his resurrection and ascension in the very throne room of God, he is always present there before the judge. He is a lawyer who doesn't stop. He's never on vacation. He's at your disposal 24-7, and he never grows weak or weary. He never sleeps or slumbers. He's never off his game, and nobody's going to take his post from him. Now, why does he do all of that? Is it simply the handsome fee that he's going to get, maybe? No, he does it simply because he wants to. His services are pro bono. He does it simply because he loves you. We are poor and in need, and yet such is our lawyer. What an incredibly comforting thought. He is the faithful and diligent priest forever who lives to plead for you. But the writer of Hebrews gives a second reason why he's a great lawyer. Verse 28 says that he doesn't live just forever, but he has been made perfect forever. He's perfect in his competency. He's perfect in his qualifications and in his suitability. For one, imagine how completely inappropriate it would be if your lawyer was also under the sentence of indictment. It's inconceivable. It's probably illegal uh, for such to be the case. And I tread uh, softly here because I hesitate to draw out the metaphor of a lawyer when we're in a church filled with lawyers and the sum total of my knowledge of the law comes from John Grisham and law and order. So (laughs) I tread lightly here. But I would have to imagine that those who have practiced law or who currently practice law, maybe there's been some cases where you've wrestled uh, with the ethics behind it. I would imagine there's been at least one case where you thought to yourself, this one's going to be a stretch. Well, if the idea of Jesus pleading your case is familiar to you, I wonder exactly how you envision that scene playing out. I wonder as you contemplate Jesus before the divine judgment seat in heaven pleading your case, if the idea of Jesus' advocacy isn't somehow infected with the idea of a lawyer who has to look for some kind of obscure law in order to make his case. I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about Jesus interceding for me, it often goes something like this. All right, Father, we're here again. Yes, Justin, he did it again. And I know you've let him off so many times already, but could you please just let him off just once more? I know the chances are likely that he's probably going to do it again, but how about this? I know You love me, right? So how about just because you love me, maybe you let him off just just once more. Pretty please. Is that how it goes in your head, maybe? Well, I think the writer to the Hebrews is saying that this couldn't be further from reality. What the author of Hebrews is ultimately getting at here is not just that Jesus is well qualified to be your lawyer, but it's actually that he's got a really good case. Jesus isn't trying to get you off on a deal. He isn't trying to stack the jury or appeal to the soft side of the judge. He isn't making some sort of spacious argument aiming to divert the, the facts of the case away from the judge. You see, he really isn't pleading so much for mercy as he is justice. Now, how can that be? Well, verses 26 and 27 tell us how. Jesus is a perfect priest because he's holy. He's innocent and he's unstained. And like all the priests that came before him, he had no need to offer any sacrifices for his own sins. He was blameless. But he's also a a perfect priest because unlike those old priests who offered sacrifices of unblemished animals, Jesus offers himself. As the song we just sang said, he's the perfect priest and the perfect victim. So, as Jesus now stands before the divine judgment seat, his intercession sounds probably something like this Father, you live in absolute perfection and you demand perfect holiness. And yes, it's true that Justin stands condemned before you and the law demands his life as a sentence of death. Well, let me lay before you, Father, Exhibit A. Look at my hands. Do you see the marks in them? Do you see the marks in my side and in my feet? Now consider all the wrath that was deserved on him has been poured out in full on me already. And it would be wrong of you, it would be unjust of you to exact two payments for one sin. That's how he pleads for justice. You see, the crazy thing about Hebrews is he's not really pleading for mercy as he is pleading for justice. And as the great hymn writer John Newton put it, justice smiles and asks, no more. My friends, Jesus, he has a case. His intercession isn't some sort of flimsy truce between God the Father and himself. It's rooted in the rock-solid perfection and justice of God. And that leads us to the final point. Jesus's intercession can change your life. His intercession brings with it at least two incredible things. The first is that because Jesus is a perfect priest, you now have uninhibited access to the object for which your heart was made, which is God himself. Verse 25 tells us the whole purpose of the intercession of Jesus is to enable men to draw near to God. That's the great end for which you were made. Fellowship, communion with God. I think often people can get the wrong notion that Christianity is just a great way to live. And while certainly Christianity is practical, it's by no means pragmatic. The Bible is is, is not a book of rules to follow or little nuggets of wisdom on how to live your best life. And I think others maybe get wrong, the idea of Christianity, that it's really about forgiveness, that it's some sort of cathartic narrative used to purge oneself of guilt. Again, forgiveness is part of Christianity, yes, but even forgiveness is not central to Christianity. What is central is is God himself. Forgiveness is the means to that end, to God. He's the ultimate aim of life, and he's not the God that we often construct in our own making. He's not some therapeutic vending machine. And it's trite to conceive of heaven as some kind of adult Disney world where all your magical dreams come true. Let me ask you, if heaven were somehow devoid of God, would you still want to be there? If not, then you have sorely misunderstood what the Bible teaches. Search the pages of Scripture and you will not find God to be some abstract life force or some domesticated therapist. You will find someone absolutely breathtaking, someone wild, even as uh, C.S. Lewis put it, untamed, dangerous even. God is the Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He causes the rain to shine and or the rain to fall and the sun to shine. And He dwells in unapproachable light and His radiant splendor and majestic purity they strike all into the heart of men. And this is the God who beckons you to Himself. He invites you to come through the blood of Jesus. Do you know this God? Have you drawn near at the sound of His calling? Have you trembled in His Presence. Have you experienced the freedom and joy that is in Him? My friends, Jesus is a great priest. And you can draw near to God and enjoy that for which you were made because of Him. But secondly, Jesus' priesthood brings uh, another thing. It, it enables us to possess God in an unshakable assurance. As a minister, one of the things that I have seen most people struggle with in the Christian life, and including myself, has been when believers are plagued with this idea of a lack of assurance. If you're here this morning and you've ever felt a lack of assurance in your relationship with God, let me encourage you to go ahead and underline verse 25, where it says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The crazy thing about that word uttermost is it means both that he's able to save completely and perfectly from every sin, even the worst sin that you have. And yet it also means that He's able to save all the way to the end. Because He lives forever. No one can remove Him from His office. Jesus, He saves to the uttermost. And yet I have found more often than not that the question on people's hearts is not so much how can I be sure that Christ is able to save me, but rather, how can I be sure that I've actually believed in Christ? You see the difference? It's a very valid and very important question. It's one that Christians have fretted with throughout the ages. And what I've found to be the most helpful answer to that problem is articulated by Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ. In this book, he recounts this little-known 18th century uh, controversy in the Church of Scotland called the Marrow Controversy and of important significance is a figure named thomas boston you see boston himself he encountered numerous people who were beset with this lack of assurance they had come to him with questions like am i really a christian have i really believed or is this all kind of in my head boston would note that the crux of the issue is what that people would get really concerned with the lack of evidence in their lives and So, of course, what did these anxious persons do when they didn't see much evidence in their lives? Well, they would would double down and try harder to produce the evidence. Have you done that? I wonder. What Boston says is that's a fool's errand. It doesn't work. The second we get preoccupied with the evidence in our lives, Boston said we are going back to the old ways of the flesh and not the ways of the Spirit. So what does he say to do? He says, if you want more assurance, don't get introspective. Now, the the only way assurance of faith will come about is to get a better grip on the object of your faith. If you turn inwards in these moments, it's like entering a labyrinth that you're never going to be able to escape. But on the other hand, if you lift up your eyes to the crucified and risen Savior, who's right now pleading your case in heaven and you see all His excellencies and all His perfections, if you turn your eyes to those things, assurance is inevitably going to follow like good fruit. My friends, if you are beset this morning with doubts concerning the sincerity of your faith, what you must do is not to turn inward, but to turn upward. Look up to your great high priest in heaven. Behold, Jesus Christ and That will fan into flame the remaining embers of your faith, even when they've grown cold. At the end of the day, it's it's ultimately not how much we trust our lawyer, but how good our lawyer is. And Christians have a perfect lawyer. And that will embolden you to trust, to have assurance. So my friends, examine His perfections, remind yourself of His ongoing intercession, and have these words ever before your eyes and blazed on your soul that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. To Him be the glory alone, and to us be the joy and the assurance. Amen. Amen.